Welcome to the Teen Peds Talks, Conversations on Child Health Equity, brought to you by the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, experts in pediatrics, and advocates for children. Thank you for joining us for our episode. This series of podcasts will have important conversations with pediatric healthcare providers who are developing efforts to positively impact child health inequities. I am your host, Jessica Peck, NAPNAP's Executive Board President. I'm a pediatric clinician, a clinical professor at Baylor University, anti-trafficking advocate, and mother of four. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Team Peds Talks. I am so excited to introduce to you our two guests today. We have Dr. Wendy Ross, who is a leader in the field of developmental and behavioral pediatrics, who, in addition to her extensive academic and clinical work, created the first air travel program for families affected by autism. Isn't that so exciting? I really hope we get to hear a little bit about that. Dr. Ross is passionate about creating an inclusive environment for individuals with autism spectrum disorder and neurodiversity. This inclusivity is not limited to uh, individuals, to healthcare access, but she has worked with museums, including the Smithsonian, sports teams, and other venues to improve inclusion of children affected by autism in the community. Dr. Ross has been an invited speaker by multiple professional and commercial organizations, including the Autism Society of America, the Department of Transportation, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and more. She is the recipient of numerous honors and recognitions for her work in the autism community, and she's been featured in major media outlets, including People Magazine, who named Dr. Ross a hero among us, and CNN, who named her a CNN hero. Dr. Ross earned her doctorate at Mount Sinai School of Medicine before going on to complete a pediatric residency at Yale and a Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics Fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital. So thank you so much, Wendy, for joining us. We really appreciate you being here. And our second guest is Dr. Jane Tobias, who is an assistant professor at the Jefferson College of Nursing at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She's a pediatric nurse practitioner in primary care and a strong supporter of interprofessional collaboration, which we're going to focus on today, and education. She brings her primary care pediatric expertise to the Jefferson Center for Autism and Neurodiversity, where alongside Dr. Wendy Ross and her team, they are creating inclusive environments for individuals with autism spectrum disorder and neurodiversity. Dr. Tobias is passionate about transitional care of adolescents with complex medical needs and advocates for increased healthcare access for this population. She continues to practice in a primary care at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where she's able to merge her passion for pediatric advocacy and education of pediatric nurse practitioner students. And she is currently serving alongside me on the board of the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners as an at-large board member. So my goodness, that is just so impressive. I feel like we could just kind of go home from here, hearing about all that you (laughs) both have accomplished. And I cannot wait to dive in uh, and and talk about what you all have been doing in your work with these, these children. So welcome to Team Peds Talks. 
Thank you, Jessica. Um, we're excited to be here today, and Dr. Ross and I will be talking about the social determinants of health, as you said, specifically about accessing health care for a population of children and adolescents affected with autism spectrum disorder and neurodiversity. Um, Dr. Ross, would you like to tell us a little bit about neurodiversity in the pediatric population? Sure. Well, you know, when we think about autism, we think about how that can manifest in so many different ways in terms of impacting social skills, communication, and behaviors. And when we think about neurodiversity, some people think about that along the autism spectrum, but it really reflects for many of us, anyone who interacts, communicates, or behaves a little bit differently, but perhaps doesn't, you know, isn't on the autism spectrum. So this could be people who learn differently, who have ADHD or attentional differences, who maybe have neurological issues or PTSD, or, um, you know, even have ongoing stress. So, um, you know, because we know anxiety really impacts processing. So it doesn't even have to be a permanent kind of condition. It can be a transient state of being. And, and, and Jane and Jessica, when I think about the care that individuals with autism need, I think about, to some degree, the care that all of us deserve, because we're all somewhere on the human spectrum. And when I think about neurodiversity, that's along the lines of what I think. Well, that's a great way to look at it and thinking about, yes, we are all on the human spectrum. And I think, as we talked before the show, I think that a lot of our listeners are going to be familiar with autism spectrum disorder, but this concept that you've described of neurodiversity may be something that you know, we've thought about informally before, but that may be a new term. And it's exciting to see you reframing that and, and impacting the ways that these individuals on the human spectrum access care. And so in this series, as you know, we're talking a lot about social determinants of health, and we're talking about that nationally in our healthcare dialogue. And, and we've known about them, obviously, for a long time, but they're just now coming to the forefront. And you are obviously forerunners and innovators and early adopters and leaders in this effort. So why don't you talk a little bit about what is accessing healthcare for children and adolescents like that have autism spectrum disorder or neurodiversity? You know, we just celebrated on July 26th the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And um, it brings up two points. Uh, one is that when we think about how in the past 30 years we see ramps for wheelchairs everywhere, and we never would have considered putting people in wheelchairs in a world without ramps. Yet when somebody has a, a cognitive difference or an invisible issue or disability, or sometimes I like to call it an invisibility because it might even be like a, a strength or an asset, but it's sort of when you look typical, but may behave unexpectedly. And for some reason, we work with those individuals, but we do not work with the community, and we do not work in an interdisciplinary manner. And if I had to pick two terms that I think would really focus in on improving equity and care, it would be that community engagement and it would be having that multidisciplinary perspective. That's fantastic. What do you have to add to that, Jane? I was um, just going to add that, you know, being in a pediatric practice and still working with my patients weekly, as is Dr. Ross, that a lot of times the inequity isn't so much about, you know, finding the doctor or accessing the building where they are. It's, as Wendy was saying, it's the community around us. 
And um, we need to think out of the box. We need to focus on innovative ways to open up the community to our children, to our adolescents. And we can't forget the parents of these children and adolescents either because uh, they in themselves are going through a huge amount of stress trying to be navigators of the community to access care. Um, in this time of COVID where we are all in essence sheltering in place to some degree, I think about my uh, families and my, my patients that live in rural areas that are really feeling a disconnect and an inability to engage in the community and their access um, is even more diminished than it was previously because of where they're located demographically. Well, yeah. that's yeah. Oh, go ahead. I, I, no, go ahead. I just wanted to add to Jane's point that there have been studies of mothers of kids on the autism spectrum that has demonstrated that they have as much daily stress as soldiers in combat, Jessica. And that wow. was not just by subjective surveys, it was demonstrated based on objective data such as cortisol levels. So imagine, um, you know, the impact that has on them just getting through the day. Absolutely. You know, one of the best things I ever did as a nursing faculty was help to place nursing students at camps with, that accommodated children with disabilities. And those students would come back and they would say, I don't know how the parents do it. You know, after they've been, you know, on call and giving 24-7 care and attending to all of these you know, special needs, it really gives you a huge amount of respect and appreciation and gratitude for the caregivers uh, of these children who really just do so much great care that allows them to thrive and allows them to uh, to really do well in these kinds of care environments. So I'm, I'm excited to hear more about what you've done to create inclusive cultures because you talk about how it's not only for healthcare access, but, uh, but for other things too. You talk about how do we go back to school and how do you get to your healthcare visit, but you also talk a lot about visual stories. And we actually have some visual stories on our NAPNAP website on the on our coronavirus resource page, if you just go to napnap.org and click on that, we have some visual stories, which were somewhat new to me. So I'd love to hear more about that and, and how you create inclusive cultures. Well, I, I think that when we think about this, we, we've created sort of a model. And the first part of it is really um, to take a perspective, to ask people on the spectrum what matters to them. And here's another point is that a lot of people take a deficit approach to autism. And for some, there are definitely factors that are deficits. But for some, it's really just a difference or a neurodiversity to some degree. So we need to ask people and, and also their families what matters to them. We need to educate individuals on the spectrum to prepare them for community experiences, and we need to educate the community. Um, we need to be measuring outcomes to create a best practice, and we need to have programming, so sort of supported experiences. You know, you don't learn to drive a car just by reading a manual. So we provide the manual, and part of that is sort of a social story, a visual story um, with pictures. That, social stories were actually created by Carol Gray, but they're trademarked, so we, we use our own visual stories to reference them. Um, and then we want there to be a, a learned experience so that if someone works with somebody on the autism spectrum in the community, they can use those skills to somebody else who just looks like they're struggling. And if somebody with autism has an experience on a plane, they can apply those skills to taking a bus. And then the last thing is the built environment. 
or E, and all of that comes together to say people, and that's an acronym, and the built environment is really important because um, for some with sensory issues on the autism spectrum, they can't even walk in the door. Um, so it's not enough that we have processes in place. We need to work on that environment as well. What do you have to add to that, Jane? Wow. So when you were talking about the visual stories, um, Wendy has created many, particularly around COVID right now with, you know, what it actually looks like and feels like to have the testing done, to have the swab done. And as you said, Jessica, getting ready to go back to school. Um, Wendy and I were talking many months ago in March when all the children were being pulled out of school, and she said something that really struck a chord with me, and that is children with autism or children with a neurodiversity Actually, this pandemic is something they've been in training for, like the ability to be able to stay in their home environment and interact virtually is something they're very well suited for and many of them do very well with, um, which I never thought of it that way. And now that we're opening back up again and these children are coming from that nice, secure environment that they were in where they thrived and now having to go back into schools, um, these visual stories are very important for that transitioning process. And another thing that we've been working on is educating healthcare providers of the future. And by that, I mean our nursing students, our medical students, our OT students, our PT students, um, to work with the families and to work with children and adolescents on the spectrum and with neurodiversity. You know, we have to be innovative. We have to be creative. So we've started making um, some simulation programs where they will have experiences of, of talking with um, a patient, an adolescent, who might be high-functioning autism and trying to discern why they're having ear pain and where is it coming from. Um, and this is all about communication, and it's all about us trying to fit into their world and not the opposite of them trying to fit into our world. That's really intriguing to think about, and I love that kind of flipped paradigm that you say and thinking about something as an opportunity and a strength rather than a challenge, because obviously COVID-19 has been an incredible challenge, and I think about my own four children who are 17, 15, 13, and 11, and I've taken them for COVID testing, and I think about, you know, just all the ways the world has changed, and then, you know, trying to do that for uh, for those that see the world in a different way, and that, it, it's just, it's almost overwhelming to think about, but the way that you frame it is really encouraging. So let's talk a little bit about how you've done this, about the healthcare systems, about pathways and procedures. I know you have some recommendations, but you also have some successes and some stories to share. So I would love to hear about what you've done and, and how the, what the outcomes are like. Wendy, why don't you jump in now? Okay. Um, I'm giving this over to, to Wendy here. She uh, recognized um, a need, or as I like to look at it, an opportunity within our healthcare system. We both work within a very large healthcare system that also has a university attached to it. And there was a, a huge gap in education for all members of that healthcare community, whether it's the security guard, whether it's the environmental services, whether it's a physician, a nurse, an educator, of um, just how to communicate with individuals on the spectrum, 
specifically, you know, the children, the adolescents, their families, and older patients. I know that NAPNAP is a pediatric organization, but we, we look across the lifespan. You know, we're preparing adolescents for transition, so we need to start thinking about them as young adults in adulthood. And um, Wendy took the bull by the horns and created a learning module that um, is just incredible that will eventually be going out to all members of our community at Jefferson. So, Wendy, I would love it if you could tell a little bit about the story behind that and what went into it. Yeah, the thing that's really exciting about the learning module is, um, first of all, that it will be mandatory across our entire enterprise, and it kind of bifurcates. So there's a scenario if you're a caregiver, like a doctor or a nurse practitioner, but because so many things happen in a medical setting before you see the doctor, there's um, a scenario for the front desk staff and other people interacting with patients. And then lastly, there's a scenario for somebody you might just be on the elevator with or in the hallway with. And we also did a video from the perspective of one person on the spectrum. And we did that purposefully for a few reasons, um, you know, because it's only one person's perspective and we're clear about that. But we really did not want to show this person, whether they were a male or a female, black or white, what they looked like. There's a huge overlap with individuals that are transgender and on the spectrum. The new CDC numbers came out in April, and they show the numbers are now 1 in 54. And for the first time ever, there's no disparity between blacks and whites in terms of the numbers of autism. And lastly, the other thing that has kind of interested us is that it appears the numbers for the CDC still show a four-to-one boy-to-girl ratio, but those numbers are of younger children, around eight. And we're finding that a lot of um, females are diagnosed later, usually when their kids are diagnosed, um, for many reasons. And um, so we talk about that as well. And this is where it goes back to somebody may not disclose they have a diagnosis or may not even be aware of it. And some of the strategies that we suggest are for people on the spectrum, but they really benefit all of us, like just not being judgmental or giving people a minute longer to process language or not intervening too quickly. Or if somebody seems upset, not reacting to them, but instead responding to them. And these are all sort of values and care that we all want to be practicing anyway. Um, so we really wanted to make sure everyone had sort of a minimum basal knowledge with this module about the different aspects of autism and how it could interfere with getting a doctor's visit. And we wanted to make sure that it was ex exposed to everybody in our enterprise because um, our CEO, Steve Glasgow, um, he's quite a visionary and um, really, you know, the last point I want to make is that the numbers for autism started to rise in 2004, which means that around now there's a whole lot of individuals on the spectrum at transition age. And most kids on the spectrum who are transitioning to adulthood, just like they fall off that academic cliff when they graduate, they are not getting adult health care. So all of these factors came into play. And it felt just really urgent to me because there's really not a mind or a minute to waste. 
Oh, my goodness. You have given me so many great little nuggets here about not reacting but responding. And what did you just say about a minute to waste? Say that again. Well, I just feel like right now there's so many um, stressful things happening in the world. You know, we have a pandemic. None of us have probably lived through that before. We have, we're at least on the East Coast, we're having a lot of weird weather and tornadoes. And, um, you know, there's been civil unrest, racial unrest. And no matter what side of anything you are, um, there's a lot of stressful things happening at once. And it's going to take all of us to find meaningful solutions. And we all, we all belong. We all belong. And we all belong. Um, our perspectives are all important. Um, and, and we really don't have time to waste. We, we all matter. Well, I love what you said just about responding and not reacting. That's such a helpful, again, flipped paradigm to look at and not a mind or a minute to waste. I love that. And looking at, you know, your mindset and how you started all of this, you know, obviously you've done so much work in this and, and received well-deserved recognition. How did this all start? Where did you, in your professional journey, where did you decide, oh, I'm going to create inclusive environments for neurodiverse people? How, how did your journey start there? Well, I guess it started for me because I was diagnosing a lot of kids as being on the autism spectrum and, you know, other things too, but autism was sort of a hard diagnosis to give. And what I was hearing from parents was that they weren't really worried about the cause or the cure, which is where all the resources seemed to be going. They were worried about two things. One was how they were going to get through the day and what was going to happen one day where they were gone. And that spoke to me about independence. And I thought, you know, if kids are not going out, there's no magic. They're not going to be able to go out as adults. So I went to museums and I said, you know, Museums are places where kids go to play and socialize, and for my kids who neither could play nor socialize, typically they were excluded. And it's actually a human right, both of those things. So um, we worked with museums, and then during that process, I had a young girl that was flying to Orlando to go to Disney World, and we had prepared her for the flight. But um, then on the way home, this particular airline, what I did not anticipate was they did not allow entire families to pre-board. This is wow. kind of back in the time, you know, there when we were flying, first of all. But <laughs> yes. Um, so they would not, the family explained to the airline that the child had autism, but again, because she was cute and had some language, the family, I think the airline just thought the family was gaming the system or something. They would only allow her to pre-board with her mother, and she got very, very aggressive. Mm. So the family missed their flight, and all of their things flew back without them. They had no car seats. They had three children. They had nothing except their carry-ons. And so they were stuck in Orlando overnight. And, and there's actually a doctor in that airport, and he wanted me to prescribe chloral hydrate for her to fly home. And I'm like, oh, wow. All you need to do is, is accommodate her. You, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I said, I'm not going to prescribe something for her. Like, this is, this is not her. This is really actually not her autism. It's more of the airline's issue, right? So right. Um, we got them back the next day. But even before then, I called Philadelphia International Airport, and I said, this can never, ever happen again. 
and this did not happen at your airport, but um, we're going to do something about it. And so that's sort of how that got started. (laughs) Wow. See, there's always an amazing story behind that. And I think that one of the things that I love the most about it is it's usually the patients that inspire us. Somehow it always goes back to a patient and we see those families and in a way that we can use our voice and use our tools and our resources and our skills and education to actually make that better. And that's a really exciting place to be in healthcare. And you have done that. You, you guys have done that with your team by making autism friendly buildings. I think that would be a new term for a lot of people. What, because we, we know what it means to be wheelchair accessible, like you talked about earlier, handicap accessible. But to be an autism friendly building, what, what does that mean exactly? Can you explain and kind of describe for us what that would look like? So I have to make a little confession is that I don't know exactly what it looks like. I have, there's one amazing architect in Egypt, Magda Mustafa, who has an evidence-based model called Aspects, which you can look up, or you can see her at our symposium in September speaking. Uh, You know, individuals on the spectrum have a lot of sensory issues, so we know they might need, like, places to tuck away in, um, and they might need um, lighting that doesn't flicker or make sounds. But to be honest with you, I think the joy of what we're doing, part of it is our curiosity and learning from our patients, to your point. And not that we have all the answers, but that we're, look, we're asking different questions. I want to just add one other thing, is that a lot of people are putting in sensory rooms into buildings. And I think it's great to have a sensory room. But I think that a a segregated separate room is not a final answer to what an inclusive environment should look like, which is not to say that I think the sensory room is bad. I just think we can do more than that. So in terms of spaces, furniture, to keep people, you know, out of their rooms, out of the room and in the world. Well, that's really exciting to hear about, and hopefully 20 years from now, we'll be sitting having a conversation saying, you know, that this is just as culturally prevalent as, you know, as wheelchair accessibility is, and that we'll have moved forward in that. And I think you're right, just looking at the curiosity of what could be, just to even imagine the possibilities are great. And you've also talked a lot about, Jane, I'll ask you about this, about community engagement, because you're not operating in a silo. This really requires a lot of players and a lot of people coming to the table. You've mentioned transportation systems, but you've also talked about sports teams and workplaces and housing centers. And why don't you talk about how you engage the community to help you accomplish this? Um, The community is... The, the basis of all of this. I think that if we don't involve the community, then we're not doing the inclusive environment justice. And in engaging the community, um, the Center for Autism at Jefferson has not only looked at the neighborhoods around us in Philadelphia, but also looked nationally and internationally and looked to what other countries are doing and how they're creating that inclusive environment. Um, Wendy has done a lot of work with the Philadelphia sports teams in, as she said, not so much having the sensory rooms where the kids and adolescents can go, but how to make the whole experience inclusive for them, such as, um, Wendy, do you want to tell them a little bit about when they go to a Phillies game, how they have actually um, people with them that help support the families in the rows and and. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, so we usually prepare the families with visual stories, and we educate the entire game day staff, all, like, a few thousand of them that work at the stadium. And then we usually provide interdisciplinary, usually there are student volunteers, occupational therapists, speech and language therapists, behavioral analysts, um, doctors, psychologists, and, of course, nurses, um, people from all backgrounds, because some families are afraid, and so they need somebody. It's not enough to be familiar with the place. They need somebody to help them troubleshoot in real time, and um, those professionals are also modeling for people in the community how to respond appropriately if someone on the spectrum gets upset. Another thing that we're going to be piloting once stadiums reopen is having some alternative seating in the stands so that somebody might, you know, and, and again, I'm not against the sensory room. I'm just against the sensory room as sort of being the only or best or best and only solution. And, you know, if we could have some other kinds of seating that, again, pe keep people in the game. That's really exciting to hear about. You know, my husband is from Philadelphia, and I think the thing he cares most about access to at a Phillies game is Chickies and Pete's crab fries. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And he also knows that the, the Philadelphia Eagles fans can be a little rough. So if we can create that protected seating space, um, and I think I would be there with them too, that, <laughs> you know, as Wendy said, these families, we think we do a good job, but we have to listen to them and what their fears and concerns are. And it may not be, I know the layout of Citizens Bank Park, it's what if I get in there and my child needs to use the restroom or they get overwhelmed by the cheering of the crowd or the Phillies fanatic scares them. What do I do then? I'm just one person with my child. Who can I turn to? Where can I get support while I'm there? Um, and being able to educate person after person. You just hope that, you know, you touch one person, you touch two people, and the more and more people that are educated and aware, um, then it does help create that environment that is inclusive and feels safe. And the game day staff, especially the Phillies, they have my cell phone number, and they'll you know, I, I I was worried at first when I was doing educational sessions that there might be some resentment, like, oh, this is one more thing I have to do. And um, But I was totally wrong because it turns out that everybody wants to be a part of helping someone exceed their own expectations. So everybody, it's, it's a feel-good moment when you help somebody do something they thought was impossible. And it's inspiring. And I'm not the only one who, who likes that feeling. Well, you know, as far as exceeding expectations, I'm sure you even exceeded your own expectations. Did you ever think at the beginning of your career that the Phillies game day staff would have your cell phone number to call to be able to provide an inclusive environment for children to attend a game? And I so appreciate that holistic approach to health because we know that the more enjoyable experiences that they have, you know, just the, the more that your mental health and your social, emotional health, those things all greatly impact your physical health. And so it's just wonderful to see what you all are doing. I think for our listeners out there who really think, you know, this is this is a new concept, or maybe I see some patients who are on the spectrum or who have some neurodiversity, and, you know, I really don't know anything about this. Where What are resources that they could have to where they could learn more and think, how can I bring this to my institution or my organization or even just my personal practice? 
Um, well, we've listed a few here. The uh, more obvious ones would be the Autism Society, Autism Speaks, and the National Autism Association. Um, we also have listed our own Center for Autism and Neurodiversity at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. But um, Wendy can give you some information about a symposium that we are having, which is free for everybody that combines interdisciplinary collaboration um, and is innovative and gives you such a big lens to look through about how you can affect change in any part of healthcare, whether it's delivery of communication, physical space. So. Yeah, we're really excited. It's September 11th, 12th, 13th, and 14th, and anyone can attend that four-day symposium, but it's actually a part of a longer course for our architecture school. So we're really excited to have moved um, sort of these improving social determinants of health from actually the medical field in an interdisciplinary way to the, the School of Architecture. Um, and we have a lot of people participating in that. And the other thing that actually was Jane's brainchild that we're working on is sort of a toolkit for pediatric practices to be autism accommodating or autism friendly and neurodiverse friendly. So, you know, thinking about even kids that might have ADHD. Um, and we'll be including, you know, tips or videos for parents, for office managers, and also preparatory stories that people can use in their practices. Um, as well as some adaptations to your office that could make them uh, just a little more accommodating for those that are different. Well, those are all really great, uh, great tips. And so we'll be looking for that toolkit, and hopefully we can post it here on our website when that's available. And kudos to Thomas Jefferson University for such an innovative approach and interdisciplinary and involving architecture. How fun is that to be able to create something that's going to be so meaningful and so beneficial to millions of families here, which is a really exciting thing. So we are coming, we've come to the end of our time and I just, it has flown by as usual. I've been so intrigued and inspired by what you have shared with us. Thank you for bringing your expertise and your passion to our listeners at Team Peds Talks, and thank you for everything that you do to impact child health. Uh, thank you, Jessica. It was a pleasure being here today. Thank you, Jessica, for having us. Thank you, and we'll hope to see you again next time. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Team Peds Talks, Conversations on Child Health Equity. Brought to you by the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, Experts in Pediatrics, and Advocates for Children. If you like our series and want to earn continuing education for this episode and others, visit pedsce at ce.napnap.org and click on the Team Peds Talks menu item. If you complete the CE activity for all 16 podcast episodes, you may request a certificate of completion to demonstrate that you have completed the CE requirements for all episodes in the Team Peds Talks Conversation on Child Health Equity Curriculum. Please join us again next time, and thank you for listening. Share your expertise. If you are interested in joining NAPNAP to explore the ways in which social influencers affect the health of children and their families, 
then we are looking for you. We are planning to launch a new conversation each week from August to November, but we need you to make this happen. For more information on how to apply, visit ce.napnap.org slash Team Peds Talks.